Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. When Joseph Bonaparte, elder brother of Napoleon, arrived in the United States in 1815, he brought with him his exquisite collection of 18th century French paintings. Put on public view, the works caused a sensation, and a new American taste for French art was born. Over the decades, appreciation of French 18th century art has fluctuated between preference for the alluring decorative canvases of Rococo artists such as François Boucher and Jean-Honoré Fragonard, and admiration of the sober neoclassicism championed by Jacques-Louis David and his pupils. To celebrate the exhibition opening of America Collects 18th Century French Paintings on May 21, 2017, Yudico Jacal shares some of the best and most unusual examples held by American museums. On view through August 20, 2017, these 68 paintings tell their stories on a national stage. Who were the collectors, curators, and museum directors, and dealers responsible for bringing 18th century French painting to America? Where are the paintings now? America Collects shows 68 paintings drawn from American museum collections from across the country. Institutions from 24 states and Washington, D.C. are represented. The exhibition tells two intertwined narratives. First, it is quite simply a presentation of some of the most high quality, beautiful, and interesting 18th century French paintings from museums across America. Conservation was undertaken on some of these works to ensure that they would appear in their best light. In addition, a great deal of research on individual paintings led to many new discoveries. These are all documented in the catalog. The second narrative thread of the exhibition focuses on a series of questions. Why are all of these paintings in American collections? What circuitous routes brought them from the private Hôtel Particulier of Paris's Faubourg Saint-Germain, or the gilded jewel box that was Versailles, to the sprawling mansions of Point Breeze in Pittsburgh? or the apartments of Fifth Avenue in New York City? What was it that so appealed to Americans about 18th century French painting that our country is now rich in this type of art? The answer has to do with taste, but as we shall see, it is not so simple. American taste for 18th century French painting is shifting and multifaceted, moving between the rose-colored canvases of Boucher or Fragonard to the hard-edged neoclassicism of David. This taste ebbs and flows as competing tastes for other types of art rise and fall in their own course. Nonetheless, there is something constant and compelling about 18th century France, a land that has been variously seen through American eyes as one of opulent fashions, court gatherings, libertine pleasures, but also of enlightenment philosophy and democratic ideals. The exhibition is organized around various categories of taste, with each room corresponding to a different grouping. Ultimately, it seems appropriate to speak of many different centuries contained within the one overarching rubric of 18th century French painting, from the sensual century to the opulent century to the virtuous century or the enlightened century. I want to start with François Boucher's portrait of Madame de Pompadour, and that is the image on the far right of my slide. She was the maîtresse en titre the official mistress to Louis XV. She was also an important collector, a fervent supporter of Boucher, as well as of Carl Van Loo, whose work is shown in this painting here, coming to us from the Frick Art and Historical Center in Pittsburgh. 
All of the works grouped together in the first room of the exhibition were once in her collection or that of her brother, the Marquis de Marigny, who was appointed Minister of Fine Arts thanks to her intervention. As artifacts of her collection, the works all represent Pompadour's taste, and this was for painting in clear pastel colors, sinuous lines, showing lighthearted subject matter, scenes of love and play. This is the aesthetic that we know today as the Rococo. The fact that all of the works shown here have gone from the artist's studio in France to Madame de Pompadour's collection, to a museum home in America, in places as widespread as Pittsburgh or Fort Worth, Texas, or Williamstown, Massachusetts, also makes the point that the afterlives of these objects is inextricably linked with the way in which we see them today. In the gallery, you will see that hanging on either side of the portrait of Madame de Pompadour are two pendants by Boucher. And that are the two, th these are the two works at the top of my slide. Pendants are works conceived to be installed together to complete one another, compositionally and thematically. Today, however, the Bath of Venus belongs to the National Gallery, and the Toilet of Venus is now in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. These pendants have been separated since the late 18th century. We are thrilled to bring them together in this exhibition for the first time since. Madame de Pompadour originally commissioned them for her Chateau de Bellevue, and they hung in her Appartement des Bains, her boudoir. There they must have constituted a flattering allusion to her beauty and refinement because of the subject matter of the goddess Venus. Subsequently, they were inherited by her brother and then separated at the time of his sale. Our Bath of Venus went through the collection of British members of the Rothschild family, another major name in the history of taste. It was famously purchased by Chester Dale in 1932 and gifted to the gallery in 1943. Meanwhile, the Toilet of Venus remained in French hands until the late 19th century, when it was purchased by the New York socialite Alba Vanderbilt at the important Berhodier sale in Paris in 1885. And I'm showing you two images of Alba Vanderbilt flanking her Boucher painting. Intelligent and energetic, the Alabama-born Alva had married her railroad magnate husband, William Kissam Vanderbilt, in 1875. Her newly wealthy new family was not admitted into New York society of the likes of the Astors. And determined to win social acceptance into this closed New York elite, Alva planned and oversaw the construction of a stately mansion at 660 Fifth Avenue. She was also a discerning art collector, and with this particular combination of arrivisme and passion, um, she was able to constitute a very uh, important collection of art. And of course, what art most more conspicuously marked taste than that with a royal pedigree? Alba Vanderbilt purchased Boucher's Toilet of Venus, and like Madame de Pompadour before her, she hung it in her own boudoir. With the next room, we move from the study of a single individual to a thematic idea. And this is the organizational principle that persists henceforth in the exhibition. All of the paintings shown in this room, entitled The Sensual Century, highlight themes of love, courtship, romance, and seduction. From Fragonard's playful pastoral love scene, Blind Man's Buff, in which a young man tickles a girl's neck and her fancy, and that's this painting here, 
to his powerful late allegory of lovers who rush forward to drink at the fountain of love. That's the work on the far left. From Natoire's mythological festivity, and that's this scene here, which was commissioned in the 18th century to mark a wedding, to Tranquess's detailed, closely observed scene of contemporary flirtation. And that, of course, is this painting. A particular focal point is the abduction of Europa by Noel Nicolas Coipel. This painting arrived in America in 1815, brought by Joseph Bonaparte, elder brother to Napoleon, who came to this country fleeing anti-Bonapartist sentiment in Europe. Joseph lived temporarily in, in Philadelphia and then purchased an estate in Bordentown, New Jersey, where he installed his vast collection of notable European masterworks. And so the image here shows the view from his, um, his mansion in Bordentown, New Jersey. And the uh, Count of Servillet is uh, the nom de plume by which Joseph went when he lived in this country, or nom de guerre. Clearly wishing to introduce American audiences to French masterpieces, Joseph opened his house to the public. He also lent his paintings generously, particularly to the nascent art academies in Philadelphia and New York. This was particularly valuable for the many American artists he cultivated and patronized, including Rembrandt Peel. Contact with Joseph meant, of course, that one was inevitably introduced to 18th century French painting, to masterworks by artists such as Jacques-Louis David or Charles-Joseph Natoire, and then, of course, there was the Coipel. This work hung in Joseph's dining room. Visitors at the time recounted being mildly shocked at the level of nudity on show, so different from American painting of the time. But they were also intrigued by the manner in which the Coipel had been executed, with its extreme sense of luminosity and unmistakable humor and lightness of touch. And in particular, you have the uh, very sort of lively expression on the face of the bull who carries off this princess, which gives a real um, sense of a, a lightness to, to this mythological scene, which, um, as you probably know, has otherwise been portrayed in more tragic um, sort of, uh, in more tragic tones in paintings. An association, as a result, was born between the notions of 18th century French painting and paintings of love. Bonaparte loved his life in America. At one point he wrote, I quote, Americans are, without contradiction, the most happy people I have known. When he returned definitively to Europe in 1839, he left the Coipel as a parting gift to one of his close American friends, the General Thomas Cadwallader, a member of a prominent Philadelphia family. And with this gift, Joseph left an affectionate parting letter containing the following addendum. P.S. The Rape of Europa is one of the best paintings by Coipel of the French school of the last century. It's a somewhat ambiguous statement. It's possible that Joseph was aware that American connoisseurship was not yet at a European level, and he wanted to make sure that his friend understood the true value of the gift. Or perhaps he was acknowledging that this major cultural icon set adrift in the new world would inevitably take on new meanings and new interpretations. Or perhaps he was simply addressing the fact that American collections could not then rival their European counterparts. If so, Americans have subsequently done much to even the gap. The illusion of French painting and love was further cemented approximately 100 years later in 1915 when Henry Clay Frick 
purchased Fragonard's large-scale Progress of Love panels and installed them in his mansion on New York's Fifth Avenue, now the Frick Collection. And so this painting that I'm showing you here is one of those panels, and you can see it installed in the room as it still remains today. Um, here's the painting, and then um, the other ones, um, you can see two of the other ones here and here. In the process of this purchase and installation, Henry Clay Frick sparked a trend for Fragonard and for 18th century French decorations. And incidentally, he was following in the footsteps of Alva Vanderbilt to a certain extent in fanning a generalized American fascination with Ancien Regime works bearing a royal pedigree. Because of course, Fragonard had made these panels, especially for Louis XV's royal mistress, Madame du Berry. The paintings remain permanently installed in their wall paneling in the Frick collection, and they cannot travel. But our exhibition presents an oil sketch for one of them, and that is this painting um, that you see here. Uh, the sketch, obviously, you can see that it prepares this larger um, picture, and the pose is very similar. Um, although there are also differences, uh, the oil sketch gives a real sense of the liveliness of Fragonard's touch. It's um, the sense of brushwork that skims across the canvas with unbridled energy and that makes it a very special work in its own right. In the course of research for this exhibition, I also came across a very interesting discovery concerning this small sketch, um, which was purchased by Henry Clay Frick's daughter, Helen, in the early 20th century. And so I'm showing you on the far left an image of Helen Clay Frick. Nothing was known of its provenance at the time that Helen purchased it, um, but it turns out that it was once in the very distinguished collection of Jacques Doucet, a major French art collector and a major fashion designer as well. Um, and Jacques Doucet was someone who would later frequent Picasso's studio and purchase Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. Today, the uh, small oil sketch is in the Frick Art and Historical Center in Pittsburgh. We move into a room full of portraits, a room full of different people. They are shown posing against luxurious backdrops. They wear sumptuous velvets and shimmering silks. The most visible is the representation of Madame Adelaide, and it's also the largest painting in the room, as you will see uh, when you visit the exhibition. Um, and so that is the painting on the far right of my slide. Madame Adelaide was the daughter of Louis XV, and the painting was done by Madame Adelaide's official portraitist, whose first name was also Adelaide, Adelaide Labiguiard. Madame Adelaide is represented with details that attest to her filial piety and devotion and to the noble legacy of the Bourbon family. She poses before a framed oval on which she has depicted her late parents and her brother, Louis XVI, in profile. So you can see all three of them sort of stacked against each other. And the inscription on this oval reads, their image is still the delight of my life. In French, obviously. High up on the wall, the relief sculpture shown here commemorates her selfless visit to her father as he lay dying of smallpox. And this was a disease that she herself contracted. And there's a sort of special significance in this uh, representational choice as well, because um, when Louis XV was dying, in order to receive a last confession, he had to send his mistress, Madame du Berry, away out of Versailles. And um, it wasn't until she was off the premises that the priest was able to come and um, in the process, of course, you know, preserve his immortal soul. 
Um, and so the fact that Madame Adelaide is making the point that she was the one woman who was sort of accompanying her father in his last moments is significant and again speaks to this idea of sort of filial devotion that she is clearly trying to project. The architectural footstool resting on, the architectural plan resting on the footstool is one for a convent that she had sponsored. So again, a sort of message about her, um, her interests and her personality. The first version of this painting, made for the princess, now hangs in Versailles. This one, in the Speed Museum in Louisville, was the artist's own. So it remained with Adelaide Labiguillard until the end of her life. Uh, it was uh, given to her heirs, who eventually offered it to the Musée du Louvre in Paris. And the Louvre rejected the gift, and that was what enabled the painting to come to America. La Biguillard was is one of two women artists represented in this room, and one of six in the exhibition overall. And this is a fact that's worth underscoring because of the constraints placed on women painters at this period. Marie-Victoire Lemoine painted the portrait of the unidentified page boy seen on the far left of my slide here. As a woman artist, Lemoine seems to have made herself the champion of another un relatively underrepresented model, and she portrays him in a quiet and dignified pose with an extremely sort of strikingly direct frontal gaze. This painting was in the collection of Lucien Guitry, a prominent French stage actor in the late 19th century. It's now in the Kummer Museum in Florida. Why own the portrait of a stranger? One of the portraits in this room offers some sort of answer to this question. It is the representation of a famous architect by his nephew, who was none other than the young Jacques-Louis David. And of course, that's the image that you have on the right. This portrait was once owned by a fabled collector, the Franco-American banker David David Vey. And David Vey was involved in the organization of an exhibition held in Paris in 1927, and that resulted in the installation that I show you here in the center in black and white. This is an exhibition of portraits that so moved David Vey that he mused about the innate power of a room of portraits. And I quote, in this ensemble, grace, distinction, and mastery of execution were mixed. It was the spirit of these two centuries, draped in the exquisite shimmer of velvet and silk, the expressions of mischievous irony or deep thought or delight the lips mocking, tender, or severe. It was the assembly in a salon of charming women and men who had not seen each other for nearly 200 years. The people represented in our room are all members of the nobility and the high-level bourgeoisie. We have that high-ranking architect. We have the sister of a king. All are fascinating, of course, but none of them possessed any particular political power. These works rather show them as they wanted to appear, surrounded by all the accoutrements of a lifestyle that they embrace and project. This was a lifestyle that American collectors would recreate as well. Some did so with the reconstruction of French decors. In the late 19th century, Alva Vanderbilt oversaw the creation of a Louis Quinze salon, a show-stopping white and gold room designed and built in Paris by Jules Allard et Fils, then shipped to New York and painstakingly reassembled on site by French craftsmen sent over for the express purpose. 
1912, Senator Williams Andrew Clark completed work on his own New York mansion, which featured a pastiche of the Salon de la Princesse from the Hotel de Subise, Paris. And these are only two examples of the many period rooms that uh, became popular in, um, in America in the late 19th and early 20th century. Other individuals emulated the types of worlds that they saw in portraits with costumes and masquerade balls. 18th century dress parties became popular among New York's elite from the mid 19th century onwards. So on the left of my slide are photographs of individuals celebrating at the Vanderbilt Costume Ball, which was organized by Alva to inaugurate her Louis Quinze Salon. We see on the far left a photograph showing Alva's brother-in-law dressed as Louis the, I'm sorry, we see on the far right um, a photograph showing Alva's brother-in-law dressed as Louis the 15th. And to the left of, um, of Cornelius Vanderbilt, we see the socialite Miss Kate Fearing Strong, who I can only imagine plays homage to the extravagant hairstyles popularized by Marie Antoinette, because Miss Strong chose to appear at this ball as a cat, and she actually wears a headdress that prominently features the head of her own embalmed cat, who, who had died previously of natural causes, I assure you. One of the most impressive of the American costume balls was the Versailles-themed party organized in 1905 by James Hazen Hyde, majority shareholder of the Equitable Life Insurance Society of the United States. And for this occasion, Sherry's restaurant in Midtown was done over to resemble the gardens of Versailles, with flowers covering the walls from floor to ceiling. So these are all of the pictures, this group of pictures that are shown here. Hyde hired the Byron Company, a photography company, to photograph his guests in a small studio set up for the purpose. And some of the resulting portrait stills of individuals in fancy dress are interesting because they recall very closely costume portraits of the 18th century in the poses that individuals struck. So you have Elsie DeWolf um, in this uh, white satin dress that very much recalls the uh, Boucher portrait of Madame de Pompadour. And you also have groups of guests who cluster and pose, um, sort of making their own tableau vivant. And this picture specifically, I think, is very revelatory because you have this one woman who is striking a pose with her fan unfurled, and then you have this other uh, guest um, who's sitting cross-legged on the floor. So it's a nice juxtaposition of sort of two different centuries meeting each other in this photograph. The impulse to will oneself into a portrait was also taken literally. In 1932, Anna Thompson Dodge, then one of the richest women in the world, had herself portrayed by society portraitist Gerald Festus Kelly as Madame de Pompadour. The final work dominated the library of Mrs. Dodge's Rose Terrace Estate in Gross Point, Michigan. And it was also reproduced as the frontispiece for the privately printed collection catalog that her dealer and art advisor, Joseph Duvine, organized in 1939 for this, his best client. So it's a way of associating her portrait in 18th century attire with her collection of 18th century, actual 18th century uh, works of art, furniture, porcelain, and paintings. Another prominent socialite, Mar Marjorie Merriweather Post, collected costumes and had herself photographed on several occasions in the guise of Marie Antoinette. And so that is the example I show you here on the left. 
The notion of the leisured courtly lifestyle of 18th century individuals has long been idealized. Representations of picnicking, the hunt, and romantic games have been prized by Americans as a result. There are also other kinds of play. The Joseph Ducreux painting we're looking at is a self-portrait. Ducreux was a foremost portraitist of his era who was immensely successful at the court of Louis XVI. In 1969, he was sent to the Viennese court to paint the youngest daughter of the Empress Maria Theresa. And this was, of course, the young lady who eventually, who shortly thereafter became Marie Antoinette. And Ducreux sort of um, fulfilled this commission so well that he became the first painter to this young queen of France. So he's someone who is well-versed in the conventions of the portrait. Um, nonetheless, here, of course, he is sort of playing with those conventions. And this becomes especially evident um, since we just looked at a series of much more distinguished, uh, sort of serious portraits in the, in the previous room. Ducroux made a whole series of expressive self-portraits of this kind, in which he played literally with the academic conventions of the portrait and the established conventions for the rendering of the facial expressions. It comes to us from the Spencer Museum of Art in Lawrence, Kansas, where it is one of the museum's most popular works, and I think it's easy to see why. When you visit this room devoted to play and pastimes, I also want to draw your attention specifically to the choice of wall color. It is a pale blue with a grayish undertone, and it has been selected specifically to highlight these paintings, both visually but also thematically. In 1924, in the wake of World War I, John D. Rockefeller made a major financial donation to renovate and restore Versailles. And one of the spaces that was restored as a result of his gift was Marie Antoinette's private theater. In the process, its original color scheme was rediscovered. It was described as gold and a, quote, beautiful natier blue, quite in harmony with the refined taste of Queen Marie Antoinette. And so you can see an image of the restored theater as it looks today. Um, and this is an image that our design team kept in mind in thinking about how to present this art about play and games. And so fittingly, this section of the exhibition, what we've just seen the, um, on the playful century, flows into the next, which is called the fanciful century, and which is devoted to theatrical play and masquerade. Here you'll find representations of actors and performers, such as the elegant portrait of the singer Rose Renault by Antoine Vestier. So that's the painting on the far right, on the far left, I'm sorry. Um, and we also have the portrait of Auguste Vestry by the woman artist Adèle Romagny. Relatively little is known of the artist, another woman artist in our group, but the sitter was a virtuoso principal dancer in the Paris Opera, so good that he was called the god of the dance in his day. Fittingly, this painting was once in the collection of Alexandre Dumas-Fils, author of the romantic novel that was eventually turned into the opera La Traviata, and of course the son of the author of The Three Musketeers. It is now in the Rhode Island School of Design Museum. The fanciful century also includes portraits in disguise or masquerade. In the 18th century, the artist François-Hubert Drouet made a specialty of painting aristocratic children in fancy dress or disguise, playing in outdoor settings. From the Frick collection in New York, we have the Comte and Chevalier de Choiseul et Savoyard. These are the children of 
these are the children of cousins of the very powerful Minister of Foreign Affairs under Louis XV. And they're shown here dressed in traditional clothing from the Savoie region in Alpine, France. Itinerant musicians from this region were known as Savoyard, and they were accustomed to roam France, playing the hurdy-gurdy, displaying peep shows, and making small um, hedgehogs or marmots dance. Um, and so the box that one of the youngsters points to is a peep show, um, and that's a reference to this sort of Savoyard tradition. And of course, this is not how the aristocratic children of Parisian nobility would typically be dressed, um, sitting outside in this outdoor setting. Two other important Drouet paintings come to us from the Birmingham Museum in Alabama. So the painting on the right, and then the painting here on the bottom left. Both were purchased by Eugenia Hitt, another Alabama-born heiress who lived in New York City and became devoted to 18th century French art and culture. She amassed a major collection of painting and decorative art of the period. Although she spent most of her life in New York, she bequeathed the entirety of her collection, the entire contents of her Park Avenue apartment indeed, to her hometown institution, the Birmingham Museum of Art. This was a bequest of over 500 objects, paintings, furniture, decorative arts, and as such, it constituted one of the largest gifts ever received from an American museum by a single donor. It was also, of course, a major gift to students of 18th century French art, and it's one that we've tried to celebrate in this exhibition by working with the Birmingham Museum to conserve their two paintings and to also do new research on the works. This led to one of the most interesting discoveries of the exhibition. It was long thought that the large oval on the right represented the portrait of Madame du Berry, Louis XV's mistress, disguised as a young male page boy. However, careful reconstruction of the provenance of this work has shown it to be the long-lost portrait of a young Spanish noble man named the Marquess of Jamaica. It was shown at the Salon of 1765 alongside an oval portrait of a young British boy. And so the costume starts to make sense because this uh, ruff that, the, that this young model is wearing and the, the sort of satin and the bright colors and the fact that he's playing the guitar was in the French imagination very typical of sort of Spanish style. Um, and it, it, it in fact had a special name, Costume al Espanol. And it's sort of funny, the uh, portrait of the young British boy, which we now know to be a pendant of this painting, um, shows this young sort of British nobleman dressed in what the French clearly thought of as English style, quintessential English style. And so he is dressed in a very sort of sober brown uh, garment looking very serious. So this is kind of interesting cultural commentary. It was, both paintings were shown at the Salon of, 1780, uh, at the Salon of 1765 and they came from the collection of the liberal educated Salon hostess, Madame Geoffrin. So completely different than what we've thought up until now. Painting in 18th century France was not all fun and games, of course. There is a serious moral and didactic side that emerges in neoclassical history painting and neoclassical portraits. And you'll also see in the exhibition space that in addition to the works that are shown here, uh, we also have genre paintings by the likes of Chardin and Jean-Baptiste Greuze um, to round out this idea of morality and virtue. 
There's a clear aesthetic shift here, needless to say, between um, from the decorative to the utilitarian, from the sinuous to the stern. This room also marks an important shift in taste and mode of collecting. Thus far, the works that we've looked at, all, I think you would agree, decorative and very pretty, have um, been purchased by private collectors and then gifted to their institutions. Here, though, we have works that were in general acquired directly by curators and museum directors without having initially passed through an American private collection. Three of the works on this slide are neoclassical history paintings. These are large format works that traditionally have tended to be viewed hesitantly by private collectors, conditioned in the intimate spaces of the domestic sphere to be somewhat suspicious of the moral didacticism and very linear aesthetic of these works. And of course, the large size, which makes them difficult to just you know, have above the couch um, or to fit with the rest of the decor. Within the walls of museums, however, these paintings satisfy different imperatives. To educate a public audience, to convey something of French philosophy, French institutions, and French history. And for these works, for this reason, these, such works have tended to be museum purchases. And for this reason, too, these paintings are among the most recent arrivals in America. So the three neoclassical history paintings I'm showing you here were acquired in the last 25 to 30 years. I'd like to draw your attention particularly to the work at the upper right, which is by an artist named François-André Vincent. And that truly is one of the most recent arrivals in the exhibition, having been purchased by the St. Louis Art Museum in 2008. The painting shows a stern tale. The Roman noblewoman, Aria, visits her husband, Paetus, in prison. He's been condemned to death by the emperor, Claudius, for his part in an attempted rebellion. In order to spare him the shame of public execution, Arya incites her husband to commit suicide, and then she, she takes up a knife and stabs herself in order to convince him that it won't hurt and that he needs to have the courage to carry this through. This is a meditation on free will and the right of the individual to maintain personal dignity, um, and it was exhibited at the Salon of 1785, which means that it was probably seen by Thomas Jefferson, who was already in Paris at the time and never missed an important public art exhibition. Indeed, it was in 1785 that Jefferson wrote to a friend about his love for French culture. I quote, were I to proceed to tell you how much I enjoy French architecture, sculpture, painting, and music, I should want words. It is in these arts they shine. We also know that Jefferson and Vincent must have met because one of the few French paintings Jefferson actually owned was by Labie Guillard, who was Vincent's wife. And so just to remind you, Labie Guillard was the author of the large portrait of Madame Adelaide that we looked at um, a few slides ago. And this same artist is the author of this portrait here, which shows a um, arts administrator during the revolution. So there's a clear connection between Vincent and Jefferson and every reason to think that Jefferson would have liked this painting and of course appreciated the sort of underlying philosophy that, um, that it's showing. Our next section, the inspired century, highlights the role of the artist in 18th century France. Shown here are self-portraits by artists, such as L'Argelière and Vigée Lebrun, 
that's these two works here, portraits of artists by other artists. So um, we have a portrait by Guillaume Latier um, showing a young girl with a portfolio. We also have examples of artist training tools, such as the magnificent and fairly little known Restu Male Academy. Um, and finally, examples of artists painting for other artists. And that's seen with the large Boucher tapestry study, this work here, which is on exceptional loan from the Cleveland Museum of Art. And it's a work that is really um, merits looking at closely, and I encourage you all to um, spend some time with it when you're in the exhibition. It's a very large work. Um, it really dominates the room. And in comparison with the Boucher paintings that you will have seen at this point um, in the previous rooms, which are much more tightly and finely painted, this is one in which you really see the sort of power of his brush strokes and a real sense of uh, virtuosity in his um, handling of the paint, which really does seem to confirm that it's Boucher almost showing off, if you will, for another artist, not painting for his patron, Madame de Pompadour, but really kind of showing what he can do artistically and aesthetically. In the 18th century, the French Royal Academy was the governing body of the art world, regulating education and professional opportunities for essentially all of the artists that we've seen represented in this exhibition and all of the artists that are shown in this room. While this was a very bureaucratic organization, it was also a true meritocracy in which talent was privileged and allowed to rise to the top. And as such, it was a model in the 19th century for the American Academy of the Fine Arts in New York and the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts in Philadelphia. I want to highlight a work by a painter who, has achieved, who achieved incredible success while operating within the French Royal Academy. And that is this painting here. Girl with Portfolio was acquired in 1954 by the Worcester Art Museum. Nothing was known of its provenance, but as the curator, who was named Louisa Dresser, affirmed in an article published um, shortly thereafter. The painting's signature identified its maker as the successful neoclassical history painter, Guillaume Letier. This was an artist who was born in Guadeloupe as the natural son of a white colonial official and a freed black slave. He left for France in 1774, and when he arrived, he took the name Letier, which literally means in French, the third, to denote the fact that he was his father's third natural child. So he couldn't take his father's actual name. And he stayed in France and um, entered the academy, where he was a biracial artist operating within a context that was still, for obvious reasons, very complicated. Nonetheless, his career was studded with official honors. He became the art advisor to Lucien Bonaparte, the director of the French Academy in Rome, and eventually a member of the Institut de France. He was also considered an exceptional teacher, and this certainly seems easy to imagine standing before his sensitive portrait, which, which seems to show one of his students. When the Worcester Art Museum made its purchase of this work, one of the aspects that was discussed was precisely the painting's emphasis on teaching and on the transmission of knowledge. The Worcester Art Museum was an institution that, like many in the United States, had been founded on the late 19th century, had been founded in the late 19th century by prominent local citizens with the edifying goal of benefiting all the people. 
The painting appealed to a vision of an intellectual and aesthetic France, the seat of teaching ideals to be emulated and transmitted. In the years before the French Revolution, Americans abroad actively sought cultural and intellectual cues from their French counterparts. In 1790, the founding father, Gouverneur Morris, charged with purchasing a Cirque de Table, or ornamental centerpiece to adorn President George Washington's dining room table, sent back these, this purchase to, um, to Washington with a letter detailing the proper care of the, this ornament and he also described what his goals were for the ornament. He had outspent his budget, but he argued that the excess cost was justified in the name of taste. And he said, I think it is of very great importance to fix the taste of our country properly, and I think your example will go very far in that respect. Thomas Jefferson, for his part, carefully appraised all aspects of French culture, from furniture to scientific instruments to architecture. He also made regular visits to Parisian bookstores, writing, I devoted every afternoon I was disengaged for a summer or two in examining all the principal bookstores, turning over every book with my own hands, and putting by everything which related to America, and indeed what was rare and valuable in every science. From the quest for knowledge, the exhibition moves to the Enlightenment, the final room. The 18th century was, of course, a period of tremendous intellectual activity, marked by scientific experimentation, close study of nature, seen in the Chardin and Udry still lifes, landscape and the passage of time, natural phenomena such as the Voler eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Ideas emerging from this period about humankind's place in the world and the rise of democratic principles fundamentally informed the revolutions in America and France. These ideas also created a context in which the two countries served as each other's closest allies. One of the most recognizable protagonists of the Enlightenment, as both a scientist and a humanist, was of course Benjamin Franklin, an American who loved France and who was beloved in France. His portrait shown here was owned in the 20th century by Walter Annenberg. This is not the most iconic image of Franklin, but it's certainly one of the most human. It was painted by a young woman named Rosalie Filleul, a friend of Vigée de Brun and a favorite of Marie Antoinette. And her self-portrait, which remains in a private collection, is shown on the right. On the right. Ultimately, for this reason, Filleul would perish on the guillotine in 1794 because of her closeness with Marie Antoinette. At the time she made this painting, however, she served as the concierge of the Chateau de la Muette, which is one of the queen's favorite royal residences. She organized lively parties for the queen and her friends, and she served as an official portraitist of sorts to the royal family. She also became good friends with Franklin. She lent him books. She told him of the birth of her first son, she asked him to accompany her on shopping expeditions. Field's portrait of Benjamin Franklin reflects this familiarity. The sitter looks vulnerable and gentle. His hair is messy. The top buttons of his shirt are casually undone. The portrait was done in the Salon in Paris, and it stayed in France with Field's descendants until it was purchased by Annenberg. But it also contains an embedded reference to America. For Franklin points to a map on which we can just make out the letters P-H-I-L for Philadelphia. 
I like the idea of concluding this exhibition about America's love for France with a painting that is in some way a product of both countries, showing a figure who has done so much to unite them. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.